Section 8 of The Good Dog Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stikeen Part 2 by John Moore. We gained the west shore in about three hours, the width of the glacier here being about seven miles. Then I pushed northward in order to see as far back as possible into the fountains of the Fairweather Mountains in case the clouds should rise. The walking was easy along the margin of the forest, which, of course, like that on the other side, had been invaded and crushed by the swollen, overflowing glacier. In an hour or so, after passing a massive headland, we came suddenly on a branch of the glacier, which, in the form of a magnificent ice cascade two miles wide, was pouring over the rim of the main basin in a westerly direction. Its surface, broken into wave-shaped blades and shattered blocks, suggesting the wildest updashing, heaving, plunging motion of a great river cataract. Tracing it down three or four miles, I found that it discharged into a lake, filling it with icebergs. I would gladly have followed the lake outlet to the tidewater, but the day was already far spent, and the threatening sky called for haste on the return trip to get off the ice before dark. I decided, therefore, to go no farther, and after taking a general view of the wonderful region, turned back, hoping to see it again under more favorable auspices. We made good speed up the canyon of the great ice torrent and out on the main glacier until we had left the west shore about two miles behind us. Here we got into a difficult network of crevices. The gathering clouds began to drop misty fringes, and soon the dreaded snow came flying thick and fast. I now began to feel anxious about finding a way in the blurring storm. Stikine showed no trace of fear. He was still the same silent, able little hero. I noticed, however, that after the storm darkness came on, he came close up behind me. The snow urged us to make still greater haste, but at the same time hit our way. I pushed on as best I could, jumping innumerable crevices, and for every hundred rods or so of direct advance traveling a mile in doubling up and down in the turmoil of chasms and dislocated ice blocks. After an hour or two of this work, we came to a series of longitudinal crevices of appalling width and almost straight and regular in trend like immense furrows. These I traced with firm nerve, excited and strengthened by the danger, making wide jumps, poising cautiously on their dizzy edges, after cutting hollows for my feet before making the spring to avoid possible slipping or any uncertainty on the farther sides, where only one trial is granted. Exercise at once frightful and inspiring, Stikine followed seemingly without effort. Many a mile we thus traveled, mostly up and down, making but little real headway in crossing, running instead of walking most of the time, as the danger of being compelled to spend the night on the glacier became threatening. Stikine seemed able for anything. Doubtless, we could have weathered the storm for one night, dancing on the flat spot to keep from freezing, and I faced the threat without feeling anything like despair. But we were hungry and wet, and the wind from the mountains was still thick with snow and bitterly cold, so of course that night would have seemed a very long one. 
I could not see far enough through the blurring snow to judge in which general direction the least dangerous route lay, while the few dim, momentary glimpses I caught of mountains through rifts in the flying clouds were far from encouraging either as weather signs or as guides. I had simply to grope my way from crevice to crevice, holding a general direction by the ice structure, which was not to be seen everywhere and partly by the wind. Again and again I was put to my mettle, but Stikine followed easily, his nerve apparently growing more unflinching as the danger increased. So it always is with mountaineers when we hard beset. Running hard and jumping, holding every minute of the remaining daylight, poor as it was, precious, we doggedly preserved and tried to hope that every difficult crevice we overcame would prove to be the last of its kind, but on the contrary, as we advanced, they became more deadly trying. At length, our way was barred by a very wide and straight crevice, which I traced rapidly northward a mile or so without finding a crossing or hope of one. Then down the glacier, about as far to where it united with another uncrossable crevice, in all the distance of perhaps two miles, there was only one place where I could possibly jump it, but the width of this jump was the utmost I dared attempt, while the danger of slipping on the farther side was so great that I was loath to try it. Furthermore, the side I was on was about a foot higher than the other, and even with this advantage, the crevice seemed dangerously wide. One is liable to underestimate the width of crevices where the magnitudes in general are great. I therefore stared at this one mighty keenly estimating its width and the shape of the edge on the farther side until I thought that I could jump it if necessary, but that in case I should be compelled to jump back from the lower side, I might fail. Now, a cautious mountaineer seldom takes a step on unknown ground, which seems at all dangerous that he cannot retrace in case he should be stopped by unseen obstacles ahead. This is the rule of mountaineers who live long, and though in haste, I compelled myself to sit down and calmly deliberate before I broke it. Retracing my devious path in imagination as if it were drawn on a chart, I saw that I was recrossing the glacier a mile or two farther upstream than the course pursued in the morning, and that I was now entangled in a section I had not before seen. Should I risk this dangerous jump or try to regain the woods on the west shore, make a fire, and have only hunger to endure while waiting for a new day? I had already crossed so broad a stretch of dangerous ice that I saw it would be difficult to get back to the woods through the storm before dark, and the attempt would most likely result in a dismal night dance on the glacier, while just beyond the present barrier the surface seemed more promising, and the east shore was now perhaps about as near as the west. I was therefore eager to go on, but this wide jump was a dreadful obstacle." At length, it became the dangers already behind me. I determined to venture against those that might be ahead, jumped, and landed well, but with so little spare that I more than ever dreaded being compelled to take that jump back from the lower side. Stikine followed, making nothing of it, and we ran eagerly forward, hoping we were leaving all our troubles behind, but within the distance of a few hundred yards, we were stopped by the widest crevice yet encountered. Of course, I made haste to explore it, hoping all might yet be remediated by finding a bridge or a way around the other end. 
About three-fourths of a mile upstream, I found that it united with the one we had just crossed, as I feared it would. Then, tracing it down, I found it joined the same crevice at the lower end also, maintaining throughout its whole course a width of 40 to 50 feet. Thus, my dismay, I discovered that we were on a narrow island about two miles long, with two barely possible ways of escape, one back by the way we came, the other ahead by an almost inaccessible silver bridge that crossed the great crevice from near the middle of it. After this nerve-trying discovery, I ran back to the silver bridge and cautiously examined it. Crevices caused by strains from variations in the rate and motion of different parts of the glacier and convexities in the channel are mere cracks when they first open, so narrow as hardly to admit the blade of a pocket knife and gradually widen according to the extent of the strain and the depth of the glacier. Now some of those cracks are interrupted, like the cracks in wood, and in opening, the strip of ice between overlapping ends is dragged out and may maintain a continuous connection between the sides, just as the two sides of silvered crack in the wood that is being split are connected. Some crevices remain open for months or years, and by the melting of their sides continue to increase in width long after the opening strain has ceased. While the silver bridges, level on top at first and perfectly safe, are at length melted to thin vertical knife-edged blades, an upper portion being most exposed to the weather. And since the exposure is greatest in the middle, they at length curve downward like cables of suspension bridges. This one was evidently very old, for it had been weathered and wasted until it was the most dangerous and inaccessible that ever lay in my way. The width of the crevice was here about 50 feet, and the silver crossing diagonally was about 7 feet long. Its thin knife edge near the middle was depressed 25 or 30 feet below the level of the glacier, and the upcurving ends were attached to the sides 8 or 10 feet below the brink. Getting down the nearly vertical wall to the end of the silver and up the other side were the main difficulties, and they seemed all but insurmountable. Of the many perils encountered in my years of wandering on mountains and glaciers, none seemed so plain and stern and merciless as this. And it was presented when we were wet to the skin and hungry, the sky dark with quick driving snow and the night near, that we were forced to face it. It was a tremendous necessity. Beginning not immediately above the sunken edge of the bridge, but a little to one side, I cut a deep hollow on the break for my knees to rest in. Then, leaning over with my short-handled axe, I cut a step 16 or 18 inches below, which on account of the sheerness of the wall was necessarily shallow. That step, however, was well made. Its floor sloped slightly inward and formed a good hold for my heels. Then, slipping cautiously upon it, and crouching as low as possible with my left side toward the wall, I steadied myself against the wind with my left hand in a slight notch, while with the right I cut other similar steps and notches in succession, guarding against losing balance by glinting of the axe or by wind gusts, for life and death were in every stroke and in the niceness of finish of every foothold. After the end of the bridge was reached, 
I chipped it down until I had made a level platform six or eight inches wide, and it was a trying thing to poise on this little slippery platform while bending over to get safely astride of the silver. Crossing was then comparatively easy by chipping off the sharp edge with short, careful strokes and hitching forward an inch or two at a time, keeping my balance with my knees pressed against the sides. The tremendous abyss on either hand I studiously ignored. To me, the edge of that blue silver was then all the world. But the most trying part of the adventure, after working my way across inch by inch and chipping another small platform, was to rise from the safe portion astride and to cut a stepladder in the nearly vertical face of the wall. Chipping, climbing, holding on with feet and fingers in mere notches. At such times, one's whole body is I, and common skill and fortitude are replaced by power beyond our call or knowledge. Never before had I been so long under deadly strain. How I got up that cliff, I could never tell. The thing seemed to have been done by somebody else. I have never held death in contempt, though in the course of my explorations, I have oftentimes felt that to meet one's fate on a noble mountain or in the heart of a glacier would be blessed as compared with death from disease or from shabby lowland accident. But the best death, quick and crystal pure, set so glaringly open before us, is hard enough to face, even though we feel gratefully sure that we have already had happiness enough for a dozen lives. But poor Stakeen, the wee, hairy, sleekit, beastie thing of him, when I had decided to dare the bridge, and while I was on my knees chipping the hollow on the rounded brow above it, he came behind me, pushed his head past my shoulder, looked down and across, scanned the silver and its approaches with his mysterious eyes, then looked at me in the face with a startled air of surprise and concern, and began to mutter and whine, saying as plainly as if speaking with words, Surely you are not going into that awful place. This was the first time I had seen him gaze deliberately into the crevice or into my face with an eager speaking troubled look. That he should have recognized and appreciated the danger at the first glance showered wonderful sagacity. Never before had the daring midget seemed to know that the ice was slippery or that there was any such thing as danger anywhere. His looks and tones of voice when he began to complain and speak his fears were so human that I unconsciously talked to him in sympathy as I would to a frightened boy, and in trying to calm his fears, perhaps in some measure, moderated my own. Hush your fears, my boy, I said. We will get across safe, though it is not going to be easy. No right way is easy in the rough world. We must risk our lives to save them. At worst, we can only slip, and then how grand a grave we will have and by and by our nice bones will do good in the terminal moraine. But my sermon was far from reassuring to him. He began to cry, and after taking another piercing look at the tremendous gulf, ran away in desperate excitement, seeking some other crossing. By the time he got back, baffled, of course, I had made a step or two. I dared not look back, but he made himself heard, and when he saw that I was certainly bent on crossing, he cried aloud in despair. The danger was enough to daunt anybody, but it seems wonderful that he should have been able to weigh and appreciate it so justly. No mountaineer could have seen it more quickly or judged it more wisely, discriminating between real and apparent peril.
When I gained the other side, he screamed louder than ever, and after running back and forth in vain search for a way of escape, he would return to the brink of the crevice above the bridge, moaning and wailing as if in the bitterness of death. Could this be the silent, philosophic Stikine? I shouted encouragement, telling him the bridge was not so bad as it looked, that I had left it flat and safe for his feet, and he could walk it easily, but he was afraid to try. Strange so small an animal should be capable of such big, wise fears. I called again and again in reassuring tone to come on and fear nothing, that he could come if he would only try. He would hush for a moment, look down again at the bridge, and shout his unshakable conviction that he could never, never come that way, then lie back in despair as if howling. Oh, what a place! No, I could never go down there! His natural composure and courage had vanished utterly in a tumultuous storm of fear. Had the danger been less, his distress would have seemed ridiculous, but in this dismal, merciless abyss lay the shadow of death, and his heart-trending cries might well have called heaven to his help. Perhaps they did. So hidden before, he was now transparent, and no one could see the workings of his heart and mind like the movements of a clock out of its case. His voice and gestures, hopes and fears, were so perfectly human that none could mistake them, while he seemed to understand every word of mine. I was troubled at the thought of having to leave him out all night and of the danger of not finding him in the morning. It seemed impossible to get him to venture. To compel him to try through fear of being abandoned, I started off as if leaving him to his fate and disappeared back of the hammock. But this did no good. He only lay down and moaned in utter hopeless misery. So after hiding a few minutes, I went back to the brink of the crevice and in a severe tone of voice shouted across to him that now I must certainly leave him. I would wait no longer and that if he would not come, all I could promise was that I would return to seek him the next day. I warned him that if he went back to the woods, the wolves would kill him, and finished by urging him once more by words and gestures to come on, come on. He knew very well what I meant, and at last, with the courage of despair, hushed and breathless, as he crouched down on the brink in the hollow I had made for my knees, pressed his body against the ice as if trying to get the advantage of the friction of every hair, gazed into the first step, put his little feet together and slid them slowly, slowly over the edge and down into it, bunching all four in it and almost standing on his head. Then, without lifting his feet as well as I could see through the snow, he slowly worked them over the edge of the step and down into the next and the next in succession in the same way and gained the end of the bridge. Then, lifting his feet with the regularity and slowness of the vibrations of a second's pendulum, as if counting and measuring the one, two, three, holding himself steady against the gusty wind, and giving separate attention to each little step, he gained the foot of the cliff, while I was on my knees, leaning over to give him a lift, should he succeed in getting within reach of my arm. Here he halted in dead silence, and it was here I feared he might fail, for dogs are poor climbers. I had no cord. If I had had one, I would have dropped a noose over his neck and hauled him up. But while I was thinking whether an available cord might be made out of clothing, 
He was looking keenly into the series of notched steps and finger holds I had made as if counting them and fixing the position of each one of them in his mind. Then suddenly up he came in a springy rush, hooking his paws into the steps and notches so quickly that I could not see how it was done and whizzed past my head safe at last. And now came a scene. Well done, well done, little boy, brave boy, I cried, trying to catch and caress him, but he would not be caught. Never before or since have I seen anything like so passionate a revulsion from the depths of despair to exultant, triumphant, uncontrollable joy. He flashed and darted hither and thither, as if fairly demented, screaming and shouting, swirling round and round in giddy loops and circles, like a leaf in the whirlwind, lying down and rolling over and over, sidewise and heels overhead, and pouring forth a tumultuous flood of hysterical cries and sobs and gasping mutterings. When I ran up to him to shake him, fearing he might die of joy, he flashed off two or three hundred yards, his feet in a mist of motion, then turning suddenly came back in a wild rush and launched himself at my face, almost knocking me down all the time screeching and screaming and shouting as if saying, saved, saved, saved. Then away again, dropping suddenly at times with his feet in the air, trembling and fairly sobbing. Such passionate emotion was enough to kill him. Moses' stately song of triumph after escaping the Egyptians and the Red Sea was nothing to it. Who could have guessed the capacity of the dull, endearing little fellow for all the most stirs, of this mortal frame. Nobody could have helped crying with him. But there was nothing like work for toning down excessive fear or joy. So I ran ahead, calling him in a gruff of voice, as I could command him to come on and stop his nonsense, for we had far to go and it would soon be dark. Neither of us feared another trial like this. Heaven would surely count one enough for a lifetime. The ice ahead was gashed by thousands of crevices, but there were common ones. The joy of deliverance burned in us like fire, and we ran without fatigue, every muscle with immense rebound, glorying in its strength. Stikeen flew across everything in his way, and not till dark did he settle into his normal fox-like trot. At last the cloudy mountains came into sight, and we soon felt the solid rock beneath our feet and were safe. Then came weakness. Danger had vanished, and so had our strength. We trottered down the lateral moraine in the dark, over boulders and tree trunks, through the bushes and devil club thickets of the grove where we had sheltered ourselves in the morning, and across the level mud slope of the terminal moraine. We reached camp about 10 o'clock and found a big fire and a big supper. A party of Huna Indians had visited Mr. Young, bringing a gift of porpoise meat and wild strawberries, and Hunter Joe had brought in it a wild goat. But we lay down, too tired to eat much, and soon fell into a troubled sleep. The man who said, the harder the toil, the sweeter the rest, never was profoundly tired. Dakeen kept springing up and muttering in his sleep, no doubt dreaming that he was still on the brink of the crevice, and so did I, that night and many others long afterward, when I was overtired. Thereafter, Stikine was a changed dog. During the rest of the trip, instead of holding aloof, he always lay by my side and would hardly accept a morsel of food, however tempting, from any hand but mine. 
At night, when all was quiet about the campfire, he would come up to me and rest his head on my knee with a look of devotion as if I were his God. And often, as he caught my eye, he seemed to be trying to say, wasn't that an awful time we had together on the glacier? Nothing in after years had dimmed that Alaska storm day. As I write, it all comes rushing and roaring to mind, as if I were again in the heart of it. Again, I see the gray flying clouds with the rain floods and snow, the ice cliffs towering above the shrinking forest, the majestic ice cascade, the vast glacier outspread before its white mountain fountains, and in the heart of the tremendous crevice, emblem of the valley of the shadow of death, low clouds trailing over it, the snow falling into it, and on its brink I see little Stikeen, and I hear his cries for help and his shouts of joy. I have known many dogs and many a story I could tell of their wisdom and devotion, but to none do I owe so much as to Stikeen. At first, the least promising and least known of my dog friends, he suddenly became the best known of them all. Our storm battle for life brought him to light, and through him, as through a window, I have ever seen Ben looking with deeper sympathy into all my fellow mortals. None of Stikine's friends knows what finally became of him. After my work for the season, I was done. I departed for California, and I never saw the dear little fellow again. In reply to anxious inquiries, his master wrote me that in the summer of 1883, he was stolen by a tourist at Fort Wrangell and taken away on a steamer. His fate is wrapped in mystery. Doubtless, he has left this world, crossed the last crevice, and gone to another. But he will not be forgotten. To me, Stikine is immortal. End of section 8. Recording by Mirabelle.